Yeah, um, I, I love the, uh, the chance to be here, and um, TCU-RUF played a, a massive role in my life. Um, it's, it's hard to talk about, I mean, my life would look completely different, literally, if not for TCU-RUF. Um, so it is a joy and a privilege to get to come back here, so I'm grateful that Bradford gave me the, the invitation. Um, we're going to look tonight at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and you've got that printed in your um, in your um, bulletin. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> That's not good. It's not what we want. John, I might need your help here. I don't know. Uh, is this just how this thing goes? Let's do that. Okay. Okay. Okay, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read this, and, and then I'm going to pray, okay? Because that's what we need to do at this point. Okay, Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming, in, coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and it's given to us in love. So let me uh, me pray for us now. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray, Lord, that you would send your Spirit and that your Spirit would work with your Word and that you would accomplish uh, what you desire in each of our hearts tonight. We pray that we would see Jesus, that we might uh, know Him more this evening, and we pray in His name, Amen. Um, many of you will know uh, the good Dr. Ron Pitcock. Is that right? Does people know? Yeah, okay. He is the, uh, he's the assistant dean in the Honors College here, and um, some of you know too, he takes freshmen, a small group of freshmen, on a really awesome three-week trip every year in May or June. It's, it's a class. Um, so he's, he's a part of our church, and so I go to him regularly for reading recommendations. He's a, he's a PhD in English, and he, along with his wife who is also a Ph.D. in English, so Dr. and Dr. Pitcock, right, um, recommended this book called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. You might have uh, heard of that before. They made a movie out of it a little while back. Uh, of course, the book is much better. Um, and what it is, it's, it's a story that's told from the perspective of a nine-year-old boy named Oscar Scheel, who lost his father in the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And so he, he, he suffers from tremendous insom- insomnia, 
uh, panic attacks, and depression. And so it's this really painful and at the same time really beautiful story of him struggling with his grief and really trying to make sense of his suffering. That's that's what the the book is about. And it's all through the lens of a nine-year-old. So, uh, for instance, he, he describes his depression as wearing heavy boots, which you think, like, that's kind of what depression feels like. And, and maybe the, the, the most powerful phrase of the entire book is the way that he refers to 9-11, and it's as the worst day, the worst day. And one of the reasons that I love that phrase is that I could probably ask every single one of you in here, what is your worst day? And you would have an answer for it. It could be the day that your parents split up. It could be the day of that accident. It could be the day of that that diagnosis that you didn't expect. It could be the day that you learned how badly you had been betrayed. And a a lot of the times, the, the, the way this works is that it's on those worst days where we ask the question, how could God allow something like this to happen? And whether you're here tonight as a Christian or not, every single one of us knows that that, that there is something wrong about days like those. And and the place we go, the question we ask then is, is, where was God in the midst of this? Why didn't he do something about it? Why would he let this happen? Why not stop it where it is? And, And what the Bible says about that question is that God has done something. He has done something about our suffering, our pain, and our sorrow. And, that, and what he did was to send his son into this world to live and die and be raised for us. And that same son, Jesus, promised that one day he would return, and when he does, he will make this entire world new. But, but he, here's where things get tough. Why doesn't he do that now? Why is he waiting? Why why is there such a long delay in his return? And and I I think that the the reason that that this is so tough is that that we start asking uh, this question, why would he not come back now? And uh, so this question or a version of it came up uh, one night in our household. We were actually reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with our boys, and uh, it was the story of the healing of uh, Jairus' daughter from Mark 5. So Jesus brings her back to life, and, and, uh, and so at which point, um, I'm sorry, I just lost my spot here. We're reading the story, and one of my sons asks this. He says, Dad, after hearing about Jesus healing this little girl, he said, why doesn't Jesus just, just heal, heal everyone now? And it's one of those moments as a parent where you, where, as a parent where you go, okay, yeah, uh, wow, look at the time. It's time that we get you to bed right now, right? Um, but, but that is the question is uh, how do we live in this delay? How do we live in this delay? And that's the question of this parable. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Three points that I want want us to look at. The first is how we experience the delay. The second is how we attempt to live in the delay. And then thirdly, how Jesus meets us in the delay. So first, how we experience the delay. So where do we see this in the parable? Well, we see it in this widow who's crying out for justice. Look back at verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So a few words here about widows. Uh, Widows have it tough now, for sure. 
It was way more difficult as a widow, though, in the ancient world. Widows were, were in this impossible situation. For, uh, for their husband to die would mean then that they would have no means of support. And so their options were then to, to go to their husband's family, where the widow would become a servant of that family, or she could return to her own family. But what she would have to do then is repay the, the, uh, the money exchanged at her wedding. She would have to repay her dowry. And so in this parable, what, what's probably happening is that the, the, the widow deserves some sort of inheritance or a payment on a debt. Here's the problem, though. Women were not allowed to go to court. So she had no one who could argue her case, no one who was going to protect her, no one who could help, and so she's totally alone. Her only option is to continue to come to this judge over and over and cry out for justice. It says this judge refused to help. And you hear that and you think, like, that's really messed up. That's not how things are supposed to be. This woman is living right in the middle of that delay. And it's incredibly difficult. But the reality is all of us know some of what it feels like to live in that delay. So for some of you, it might be that you feel this in your family. Where you watch your parents' marriage fall apart. And of course, there was nothing you could do about it. And in the midst of that, you're, you're asking the question, Jesus, why don't you fix this? Or maybe, maybe it's that you feel this in yourself, where, where you, you feel the, the darkness of your depression and of your anxiety that won't lift. Or you feel this in the struggles that you have with your own sexuality that, that just won't shake, that won't go away. Or maybe it's in your addictions that, that, that feel like that they, they have you by the throat. And in all of this, you're thinking, Jesus, why will you not heal me? We feel this in our world. Uh, we, we, we see this in the wrong done to children. Keegan mentioned this, uh, the organization called International Justice Mission, this group that's been uh, involved for over 20 years fighting human trafficking, fighting the, the, the uh, violence done to the poor in some of these developing countries. And I read this piece recently about IJM, and it was about a place in Cambodia where, this Vietnam, where Vietnamese children as young as five years old were being sold into this human trafficking system. And you hear that and you think, like, Jesus, why don't you stop this? And you feel angry and you feel helpless in the face of it. And I think one of the most powerful pictures of that feeling of anger and helplessness actually comes from Forrest Gump. You remember the, the character Jenny in Forrest Gump? She was one who, who was abused by her father her whole life. And then so later in life, she and Forrest are back in the town where they, they grew up in. And they're walking through this town and they come upon the house where she was raised. And where all these awful things happened to her. And she immediately bursts into tears. And she picks up a rock and she throws it at the house. She picks up another and throws it at the house. And over and over again until she can't find any rocks. And then she takes her shoes off. And she throws her shoes at the house. And so then you have Forrest who's the, the narrator at this point, And he says this. He says, sometimes I guess there just aren't enough rocks. See, that is what the delay feels like. Where we know deep within us that things are not the way they're supposed to be. 
And it's really important that we understand why that's the case. And in order to do that, we need to understand that the story of the Bible as a whole, see, the beginning of the story of the Bible is that God created this world good, without sin, without pain, without death, without any kind of brokenness. And then when Adam and Eve eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they plunge this world into this state now of brokenness. And so sin is not just our guilt. That's a problem, and it's a massive part of the problem of sin. But the other effect that sin had on this world is that this world is now not the way it's supposed to be. And so here's what that means for you. It means that you are both a sinner and a sufferer. You sin but you also suffer from the effects of the curse in this world. And, and one of the reasons it's so important to understand that you are both a sinner and a sufferer is that, that there, are, are, there, there are times where it's really tempting to try to draw a straight line from your abuse, from your illness, from your pain, from your suffering, and try and draw a straight line to something that you've done. And that's just not how this works. We feel the effects of sin in this world because this world is broken. So we, we, we experience the pain of this delay. We long for Jesus to return and, and to fix what's broken. And so our second point then, though, is how do we then attempt to deal with it? What do we try to do with this? How do we attempt to live in the delay? It's typically one of two ways. One way that we try to do this is that we try to adopt uh, what I'd call a, a naively optimistic view of both God and the world. And so what this looks like is trying to downplay, and maybe even in some cases, ignore your pain and your suffering. And sometimes that's because uh, you, you've grown up maybe in a tradition, some kind of church, that, that paints a picture of the Christian life that says to be a Christian is to always be happy. And if you're not joyful and happy and upbeat, then you must not really know the Lord. And sometimes, this is even in songs that we sing. This is a reason that Bradford mentioned what he did. We sing good songs that say true things because there are some songs that say things that aren't true. Um, one of those is a song called At the Cross. It's kind of sing-songy, and I'm not going to sing it now, which is good. Uh, but there is a line in there that says, And now I am happy all the day. Two problems with that. One, it's not true, right? <laughs> Uh, secondly, it's not Christianity. So, like, if you're okay with those two things, we can sing that song, right? Um, but, but why do we do this? Part of the reason that, that we do this, I think, is because it, it, it's too hard on our faith to ask questions like, God, why don't you return and do something now? Jesus, why don't you fix this now? And the reason that's so tough is because if God doesn't answer that prayer, then it gets really easy to start thinking that either he can't do something about it or, maybe even worse, he won't do something about it. And so instead, it's easier just to ignore that, to downplay the pain and the suffering and to sort of force this naive optimism. And of course, the problem with that is that it's a lie and it's a denial of that pain and suffering. And the Bible doesn't ask you to do that. The Bible does not ask you to ignore the evil and the wrong done to you. So that's one tendency, is to, to go in the direction of a naive optimism. When, uh, oftentimes, when that ends up not working, we swing the other direction. And, and, and it's then to this tendency, which is adopting a cynical view of God and the world. 
So here's how this works. So, so maybe you've endured suffering for so long that you start to feel like the only way that you could really protect yourself against it is to begin expecting those bad things to happen. Because if you, if you begin to pray and hope that maybe God's going to change something and bring some kind of healing and some sort of reconciliation, and then he doesn't, then it might feel worse than, than if you had expected it to happen in the first place. And so as a way to try to protect ourselves, we begin to expect things to go wrong. That's what cynicism is. And so what we do is we begin viewing God as one who, who doesn't care. What you do is you start viewing God as, as the judge in this parable. One who's hardened towards your cries. One who's maybe annoyed by you. One, one who maybe is only ever going to act because he just gets sick of your whining. And so eventually, in the words of verse 1, we end up losing heart. And we stop praying for things to change because we kind of think, what's the point? The problem with that is that that is not the God of the Bible. We're going to see more of that in just a moment here. So neither of those tendencies, that naive optimism or this cynicism, work. Because both of those extremes end up forcing us to, to deny something that's really important. So on the one hand, it's, it's forcing us to, not, to deny the, the experience of our suffering. And then on the other hand, it forces us to, not, to deny the, the love and goodness and justice of God. So the question then is, what's the solution? Well, thirdly, finally, how Jesus meets us in the delay. How Jesus meets us in the delay. What Jesus does in this parable is he reminds you that he will one day make all the wrong things right. That is his promise. That is what he will do in the end. So what does he say then in verse 1? He says, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's saying, don't give up praying. Don't lose heart. Really important qualification here. Jesus is not saying, just keep at it. Keep your chin up. When life hands you some lemons, make some lemonade. When life knocks you down, get right back up. That would be to fall into that naive optimism. That's not what he's saying right here. So, so what does he mean? I think what Jesus is calling us to do here is to pray and not lose heart because when we pray, we're reminded of two really important things. That is who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And that is exactly what we need in the midst of our pain, our suffering, and our injustice. And so the question then is how? How can we pray and not lose heart? Well, here's what I want to suggest to you. We've got to give ourselves to a biblical form of prayer called lament. And this is really what Jesus calls us to do in verse 7. He says, we're to be those who cry out to him day and night with our suffering, with our pain, with our sorrow. So, so what is lament? Well, um, Bethany Huang defines it this way. She says it's an unguarded type of prayer. She says to lament is to pour out your hearts holding nothing back. It's to pray without trying to be more full of faith than we actually are. Lament is prayer that honors the honesty of pain and anger while also honoring the truth that God is the one who reigns and whose love never fails. 
Lament holds intention all the suffering that seems to make no sense with a determination to believe that God is just. So do you, do you hear how that, that's different from both that, that naive optimism and that cynicism? It's unlike that naive opticism because what lament does is it enables you to be very honest and take your pain very seriously. Listen to the, the honesty of this psalm. This is Psalm 13, which is a psalm of lament. This is what David says. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you, will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That, that is an honest prayer. He is praying his pain. So it's not like naive optimism. But neither is it like cynicism. Because lament enables you to, to cling to the hope of God's promises in the midst of your sorrow. So listen now to the, the hope and the confidence of Psalm 13. He says this at the very end of the psalm. He says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So lament ends up being the, the, this prayer of faith. Because it's an appeal to God to act according to who He says He is. So Bethany Huang says as well that, that, that lament draws us towards God when we're tempted to run from Him. So then, how do we lament? A couple of ways. One, we've got to remember who God is in the midst of it. Remember who God is. Look back at verse 7. Jesus says this, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So here's the point of this parable that, that might have sounded a little weird when I first read it. it the, the point is that, he, that God is not like this unjust judge. The parable is what we'd call a, an argument from the lesser to the greater. So if this worthless, jerk, unjust judge like this guy, who hates God and hates other people, is going to give justice to those who cry out. How much more will your heavenly Father who loves you do that? And so the, the picture of God is one who longs to do good for His people. A, a God who weeps with the brokenhearted. One who, who, who sees, and, and, and we could even say this, feels the, the pain and the sorrow of His people. And not only that, it's a picture of a God who's going to do something about it. Because Jesus says he will bring justice. He will make right all the wrongs in this world. And I know we can, we can get to this point and think like, well, that's the question we started with, Brian. Like, how can I be sure of that? I've been waiting for so long. And, and, and how can I know that God will keep his promise? And that's where we've got to do this, secondly. It's by remembering what God has done already. See, what the God of the Bible did is enter into his broken and fallen world in order to rescue his people. He, he did this by taking on flesh and experiencing the, the pain, the suffering, and the brokenness of this world on a scale that has never and will never be experienced. He didn't stay on the sidelines. He, he, he's not removed from your pain and your suffering. Instead, he entered into it and he took it on himself. He experienced the, the worst 
of all injustice. And see, that is God's ultimate answer to this pain and this suffering in this world. It's the death and resurrection of his son. Because what happened on the cross is that Jesus bore the full weight of God's wrath for sin. He bore the penalty for sin and for the guilt of all those who would trust in him and ended up enduring death itself. Here's the great news, though, of the gospel. Jesus didn't stay dead. He went into death and he came out on the other side. And by rising from the grave, he defeated death. And that is where our hope is now, in the resurrection of Jesus. And so how can you be sure that Jesus actually will make right all the wrongs in this world? It's the resurrection of Jesus. How can you be sure that one day God really will wipe every tear from your eye? It's the resurrection of Jesus. How can you be absolutely certain that there will come a day when there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death anymore? Well, it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question then is, how can this future become our future? Well, look back at verse 8. This is actually what Jesus is getting at there. It ends a little weird. It ends with a little bit of an edge. But here's what, what, what he says. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The way that you can be certain that this future is your future is by putting your faith in this resurrected King. Because what he says is that his resurrection will one day be your resurrection. Where he will return and he will make this world new again. And so what we do until then is we lament and we pray our pain and we look to his resurrection in hope. That's what he offers you tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to be the one who would bear the penalty for our sin. We thank you, Lord, for his death on the cross. and We thank you for his resurrection from the dead and for the hope that that provides for us. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who pray and would not lose heart. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.